So if you have your Bibles there with you, um, please turn to 1 Kings 14. And we're going to pretty well systematically work through the passage again. We'll get to know this story fairly well by the end of this. And, um, yeah, like I said, we're, we're working our way through. There's, um, last week we went through 1 Kings 13. We had a, a couple of messages there. There were a few miracles and a few costly mistakes. Um, and if you weren't here last week, look, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it either using one of the podcasts or um, online and have a look at that, that message because it does give us a really good background as to what's happening today. Um, before we go much further, though, I would like to pray. Let's just bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word that we can read it, that we can study it together, and then we can learn from it. And thank you, Lord, for the faithful messengers that you've given us throughout our lives, throughout our time, that have brought the word to us personally, that we can learn from it as well. Amen. So this morning, I'd like to start the message a little bit differently. I'd like to start with some personal reflection time. I'm going to ask you two questions to reflect on. Um, No right or wrong answers. Um, And each person, you'll have your own personal thoughts on this. I I don't expect you to share your thoughts. You might want to go home and talk about it with your family afterwards. But the first thought, I want you to think about a minister or a faithful teacher or someone special in your life that's guided you towards God, Um, particularly after you were saved too, someone that's reminded you about your saviour Jesus who died on the cross and rose again and sits at the right hand of God someone that you've prayed with, someone that you've read the Bible with, someone that uh, you can turn to and talk to about things, big things in life. So, And I want you to take, think about that person and take a short moment now just to thank God for that person. Just pray quietly, just for a short moment, for that person and their ministry. So I hope there was someone that you could think about and pray about. And I want you to, to you know, maybe later today, give that person a call if they're still alive too and just, and just let them know what they've done in your life. The second reflection question that we've got requires a little bit more thought and, um, and there's a couple of characters in our passage today. And so the reflection part is, and you don't have to answer this straight away, but I want you to think about this passage as we're going through it and think about the relationships between these characters and which character do you identify with most? There's a couple of characters there. Which one do you identify with most? All the characters in that story today have been introduced to us in the first two verses in our passage. These verses give us the background that we need. There are three members from the same family, Jeroboam and his wife. She's not been recognised by name, by the way. She just is the wife of Jeroboam and their son, Abijah. The other person in the story is the prophet Ahijah. And I'm going to call him the prophet Ahijah so we know who we're talking about and the son Abijah because their names sound so similar. And Jeroboam and Ahijah have the prophet, have the special relationship with one another in 1 Kings 11.31. And summarised by Jeroboam, it says, Ahijah the prophet is there, the one who told me I would be king over his people. And so just as we saw in that that clip a little while ago from the Bible Project in the service, that the the book of Kings is about the kings that ruled over Israel and Judah, but also introduces us to the prophets, the key figures in Israel's history. Ahijah the prophet was the first of these prophets in the book. 
Do you remember what was said about those prophets? They were not fortune tellers. Rather, they spoke on behalf of the God of Israel. They played in the role of the covenant watchdogs, which means they called out idolatry and injustice among the kings and the people. They were constantly reminding the, the kings uh, and Israel of their calling to be a light to the nations. They, they should obey the commands of the Torah. And the prophets challenged Israel to repent and follow God. So when his son was sick, Jeroboam didn't know what to do. He would have tried all manner of things, no doubt. And then he would have remembered there was someone that he could turn to, that he could talk to. And there's a couple of observations that I'd like to share with you when we consider verse 3. Jeroboam knows that the prophet Ahijah is God's prophet. He doesn't ask for healing like he did in 1 Kings 13 when his hand was shriveled up and he asked, intercede for me. That's not the question that he asks here. Jeroboam knows that God can perform miracles. He's seen them right before his eyes, yet he doesn't bother to ask for a miracle. What does he say? He says, I will, he will tell you what will happen to the boy. He's asking for the future. He's asking, you know, find out what's going to happen in the future. He's treating the prophet Ahijah as a fortune teller, exactly that the prophets were not. They weren't fortune tellers. They brought messages from God. Another observation here is even though the son, Abijah, is referred to as a boy, he's already known by Israel. We hear later in the passage that the prophecy that all of Israel will mourn his death. He must have been some boy that all of Israel knew who this kid was. And in verse 18, we find out that they did mourn his death. I'm not really sure what to make of this. The Bible doesn't give us any insight to, to who this son was. But it suggested that while he was referred to as a, a boy, he probably wasn't a, a small child, but someone a bit older, someone that had done something likely to be known by all of Israel. Now, I'm not sure what Jeroboam was expecting to hear back from the prophet Ahijah, but despite the fact that he's turned away from God, he's led the whole nation into idolatry, he's received the message of judgment against his kingdom last week from the man from Judea, Jeroboam's not a believer, yet he still wanted to know what does the prophet have to say. Do you recognise this behaviour? Do you Have you done this yourself? Do we only turn to God when we're in trouble? This is very human behaviour. This is, is, you know, there's no need to go and see the doctor when you're not sick. When everything's going just fine, when there's no trouble in the world, we tend to happily go about our own business and, and do as we do. But life as a Christian is meant to be different. If we know Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, we're called to acknowledge him in all aspects of our life, not just when things are going bad. We're called to trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight from Proverbs chapter 3, 5 and 6. Or in Colossians um, a message from Paul, and do and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. But when we don't do this, when we forget, is that the right word that we've just forgotten? Maybe when we get comfortable or we lose sight of the work of the Lord in our life and when we're not walking with the Lord. So Charles Spurgeon refers to this person as the occasional hearer, and he preached on this exact passage, and it's a, it's a wonderful sermon to go and read. And he talks about the occasional hearer that might be sitting in the congregation. 
and he aligns the occasional hearer with Jeroboam. The occasional hearer has a number of points of character. They're persons of no piety. In trouble, they seek out the prophet, and they have confidence in the prophet because they've heard him preach before. That's why Jeroboam turned to Ahijah the prophet. The occasional hearer is not walking daily with the Lord. We might use a more modern phrase, the backslider, someone that's drifting away. We might not recognise this person if they're sitting next to us in the pew today. Another phrase you might be familiar with is, is being an authentic Christian. That's a whole other sermon topic. And, and we have this comparison between the backslider slowly drifting away and the authentic Christian living out their, their Christianity every day in everything they do. I want to share with you a wake-up call that I once received. When I was backsliding, I clearly remember the one phrase someone said to me. It hurt me to my core. They said, I thought you were a Christian. I thought you were a Christian. It still stings today when I remember it. <clears throat> During the preparation for this message this morning, I found this old story. It's attributed to Joseph Addison, who published The Spectator in the early 1700s. He, said, he wrote this, There are persons who profess to be atheists, but their atheism is not very deep. There was an atheist who was on board a ship in a storm. Well, he knelt down to pray. He expressed his firm belief in God. And when he got ashore, someone laughed at him for it. And he challenged that man to a duel. They fought together. The atheist fell wounded. The blood was flowing. He believed there was a God. And he began to cry to God with all his might to save him. The physician, physician was called and he bound up the wound. And the man put the question to him, Is it mortal? No, he says, it's only a flesh wound. And then he says, the man, and then there says the man, oh, there is no God. I'm a thorough atheist after all. He believed in God when he thought he was going to die. And the moment he felt himself better, he returned to his unbelief. He's flopping and flipping around. Look, there's no question where Jeroboam stands before the Lord. He's completely turned his back to God. As for his unnamed wife, the other character in our story, where does she stand before the Lord? We can only assume that she's been indulging in the same pagan worship as a father, as her husband, the king. And from our text, Jeroboam trusted her enough to complete the task of going to the prophet and bringing back his message. From our text, we can also assume that she was obedient to her husband and that she disguised herself to go to the prophet Ahijah. We read in our text that Ahijah is blind due to old age, yet he resided in Shiloh in the northern kingdom. So this really begs to ask us the question, why did um, Jeroboam's wife need to be disguised? It's not like she was travelling in enemy territory into Judah. She, she wasn't um, at threat of her life or anything. The two kingdoms were engaged in civil war. Maybe there would be a sneaky raid and she, didn't want to, she wanted to move undetected. Um, another speculative idea is that maybe Jeroboam wanted her to hide her identity so that people didn't see that his wife was consulting with the prophet of God. But regardless of the reason why, this disguise turns out to be completely useless. When it came to the vision of the prophet Ahijah, we read in verse 5 that the Lord had told Jeroboam, had told him who was going to visit, why she was visiting, and how he's going to answer the question before she's even asked the question. 
So I like, I really like the um, ESV translation for verse 6 in 1 Kings 14, and it goes like this. When Ahijah heard the sound of her feet as she came in the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. This is where I got the title of our sermon this morning, Unbearable News. And it fits well with last week's message being you know, all about our fake news and how to test the word that you're getting. When I asked you at the start of the message this morning, which are the characters you identify with, I wonder if there are some of you that might identify with the wife of Jeroboam. In her obedience to her husband, she now has to return to deliver this unbearable news about his kingship. Even though Jeroboam was appointed ruler in verse 7, he'd failed to be like David in verse 8, he was more evil and made other gods and idols and aroused God's anger and turned his back on God, verse 9 of our reading. None of this is new to Jeroboam. He knew these things. He chose to behave in this way. But what is new is this personal message directed to Jeroboam that God's going to bring disaster on his house. God's going to clean up this mess. The imagery here isn't familiar to us. He's going to burn up the house as one burns dung. Not something we might be familiar with, but it turns out that many cultures, both ancient and modern, rely on dung cakes as a source of fuel for their fires. This practice protects the precious wood resources and it uses up this waste product. It's amazing what you can find on the internet. There's a picture of a dung fire from India. It's currently being used at the moment. This is what people do. Regardless of whether that imagery is familiar to us or not, the message is really clear. God's calling Jeroboam's house nothing more than a big pile of poo, and it's going to be burnt to nothing. Even more graphic is the fact that the bodies of the dead will be left for the dogs and the birds. No, there's no image for that. We're not going to look at that this morning. But the message that the prophet Ahijah has for the wife of Jeroboam doesn't finish here not just about the house being destroyed and the bodies all being left out in the, in the grounds and in the fields that they're not buried. It becomes so much more personal, so very specific. As for you, he says. Let's pause here just for a brief moment. This message is terrible. The boy will die. Her son, she won't even get to see him before he dies. She's going to be travelling back to the royal court in Terza, planning her son's funeral. Why? Because God has identified him as the only one in the entire household who's any good in him. This seems messed up. Why does he have to die? This is God's divine judgment. The boy's going to be spared the suffering that's going to come from the destruction of the house of Jeroboam. The boy's going to be mourned by all of Israel. The wife of Jeroboam only has to step on the threshold of the house and the boy Abijah dies, just as the prophet Ahijah said would happen. If you've suffered loss in your life, and maybe you'll identify yourself with the wife of Jeroboam. This is such a sad occasion when a parent's required to bury their child, something I've never experienced and I can't even begin to imagine what it's going to be like. Turning to the word spending time in prayer, talking to that person that you identified earlier in the message this morning. Each of these things might not provide perfect answers, but together all of it will help. 
We can read in Psalms verses like this, Psalms 10, 14. But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Or we might read in Romans 8, verse 18. I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And further in Romans, Romans 8, we read these verses. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he searches our hearts. He knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. See, disguises are no good here. He who searches our hearts, he knows us. He will look into you. The disguise is useless. It doesn't matter what front you're putting on, how you try to appear to other people. God knows what's going on. He gives us the Holy Spirit to help us in our weakness. And when you know Christ as your saviour, you are never alone. We dive back into our passage now. The last part of the message the wife of Jeroboam receives from the prophet of Ahijah is in verse 14. In the, now, the near future, a new king of Israel will replace Jeroboam. And in verse 15, we see that first prophecy of the coming exile that's in the big picture and that's coming in uh, later in the, in, the, in the entire book. But here it is here, mentioned in 1 Kings 14. In verse 16, just in case we forgot why all of this was happening, the prophet Ahijah tells us explicitly, and he will give up Israel because the sins of Jeroboam has committed and has caused Israel to commit. Throughout the rest of one kings and two kings, you read these phrases about each of the kings, resting with the ancestors. In other words, the kings are dead. And all the other events have been recorded in various books. These books were a written history of the kingdoms and they would have acted like a, a fact check or a cross check, cross reference. We don't have a record of these chronicles that the, our passage talks about. Um, there was, a, interestingly, as I was reading through all of this stuff, um, that king from Egypt, Shishash, that came across, he is mentioned in Egyptian archaeology. So they have found some uh, record of all of the towns that he rode through and that he conquered. And it mentions that he went to Jerusalem and he got the golden shields. There are fact checks, there are cross checks in there for those students of history. But we read our Bibles and we trust what we, we read. We take our Bibles as God-breathed, inspired scripture that we can be trust that can be trusted and relied on. So closing out chapter 14 this morning, we jump back to the southern kingdom. We catch up with Rehoboam, Robbo. I like the nicknames. They help us know where he is. So Rehoboam's down there. He too, no good. He's leading his kingdom into sin. The Egyptian king comes and takes away all those treasures. He must have been walking in. Remember the golden cups that the, they were so, so rich and so much gold that they would, you know, silver and bronze was worth nothing and they're drinking from golden cups. And the Egyptians must have walked in thinking, jackpot, look at all this stuff. Just in the kitchen, open up the cupboards, there's all the gold. And they take it home with them. We draw this message to its conclusion throughout the rest of the book of Kings. King David's held up as a measure of a good king. And Jeroboam becomes the standard for the worst of the bad kings. Are you still thinking about the characters in our story and who you identify with? Have you identified yourself with Jeroboam? Make sure you come and talk to me afterwards. I want to tell you how Jesus Christ can change your life. 
He's forgiven your sin. He's taken it. He's nailed it to the cross and he died for you, defeated death, and he rose again. If you identify yourself with Jeroboam, there's no fear. You can still turn away from your sin. You can still be welcomed into the presence of God because he will speak on your behalf. It's never too late to turn to God. Just like the thief on the cross turned to Jesus. Verse 39 from Luke 23. One of the criminals hung there and he hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We were punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. This man, he has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. But what about those of you that already know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour? Maybe you identify yourself with the prophet Ahijah. Man, this is a high standard. Even in his old age, when his eyes had failed him, when all around were sinning, he still had a relationship with God the Father. The prophet Ahijah was the representative of God that the evil king Jeroboam thought to seek an audience with through his wife. Now, I've got a challenge for you. Become that representative of God so that those around you might choose to seek an audience with you. You don't have to be a minister. You don't have to stand up here and do a message like this. Think about that person in your life, back at the start of the message, who you thought about, who, who led you, you could talk to, you could pray with, you could read with, read with. Follow their lead. Be that someone that's prepared to pray for, with people, someone that people want to read their Bibles with. I'm going to borrow a phrase from someone in our congregation. They said, be passionate about discipleship. 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about the living stone that chosen by God, precious to him. And in verse 9, 1 Peter 2, we find these verses. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is your challenge, church. Be that royal priesthood. Behave like a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And let's be an example for others to follow, supporting one another, doing the work of God in our community. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you we can read the scriptures together. We thank you that we can learn from your word and we can learn from these uh, messages in the Kings. And we thank you, Lord, too, that you give us a challenge like this to be the messengers here in Griffith, to be the messengers to the people around us. We thank you, Lord, that you give us your spirit, that your spirit will give us the words to say, that will give us the chance to, to be there for people and that when we don't know what to pray, your spirit will tell us what to pray, that you search our hearts, Lord, that you know who we are you know what's going on. Help us to support one another. Help us to look out for each other and that we might grow this church and grow the kingdom of God here. Amen.